0: The Neuroscience of Trust and Vulnerability. Only here on the People Scientist Podcast. You are listening to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health, Hello my People Scientist Army and welcome back to the People Scientist podcast for episode 142 where every week I arm us with some scientific information so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you feeling today? Whatever it is that you may be doing right now, whether it is driving, riding the train, cleaning, exercising, or relaxing before bed, Thank you for bringing me into your day. Seeing as we are now in the month of February, the so-called month of love nearing Valentine's Day, I wanted to do a somewhat timely topic. I sometimes think about vulnerability, trust, openness as a personality trait. Are these good and healthy traits? Do we need them to have healthy, strong relationships? Whether that be friendships, co-worker relationships, or romantic relationships. What is the neuroscience of trust? Perhaps if we can understand this, the neurochemistry, what environmental things influence our trust, perhaps then we can form better relationships and have targets and strategies. So let's dive into that, shall we? But before we do, as we always do, let's jump into a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. Barian back in 1943, in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, investigated the size of the pupil of the eye, which is the dark circle that sits in the center of our eye, and they investigated the pupil as an indication of deceit. In this study, 32 college students had their pupil size measured during tasks when they were being deceived and when they themselves were being deceitful. The scientists noted that when people were being deceived, their pupils tended to dilate, then very quickly constrict. The scientists also noted an instability in pupil size, so the pupils may have fluctuated from being larger or smaller over and over when an individual was being deceitful. Now the reason why could be related to the locus ceruleus of our brain. This brain region is the main source of norepinephrine that facilitates the fight-or-flight response. Intriguingly, this brain region also seems to influence the size of our pupils. So perhaps our eyes are not a window into our soul, but a window into our locus ceruleus. Now, how about we get into the core takeaways of today's topic, on the neuroscience of trust and vulnerability. Trust, by definition, is the firm belief in the truth, reliability, strength, and ability of someone or something. For example, trust is important in intimate relationships, that we believe in the ability and strength of our partner. Trust is important in family relationships. We believe in the truth and reliability that we can rely on them. Trust is also imperative in work relationships that we believe in the ability of our coworkers and our boss to carry out their role. But trust is not an easy emotion to garner. It is quite complex, especially when trust has been broken in the past. In this episode, I will talk about how certain brain regions, like the paracingulate cortex, seem to regulate our feelings of trust. How subtle things like eye contact, Pupil size and chemo signals may influence our initial feelings of trust when meeting new people. I also go into strategies of how we can build relationships based on trust, which involves a certain level of vulnerability. So keep listening on for all those scientific details. Trust generally involves the willingness to be vulnerable to the actions of another person. And that's based on our belief that that person will perform as expected. So we trust that someone will fulfill their responsibilities. We trust that they will be honest, that they will do as said, for example. Ernest Hemingway had said, the best way to find out if you can trust somebody is to trust them. And I think Hemingway's point is that trust is reciprocal, that it involves vulnerability. I'm exposing my back To face the world and hoping that you have my back protected, knowing that I could be hurt in the process. Trust also involves a feeling that we are receiving a return on the emotional and cognitive emotional energy that we put into a relationship. This can look like recognition of one's efforts to get that return, to be appreciated. This can be seen in work relationships. Employees who don't feel appreciated at work are more likely to leave their jobs. There was a decade-long research project conducted by Adrian Gostick and Chester Elton, and they found that 79% of employees who leave their jobs cite a lack of appreciation as the primary reason. Each year, employee turnover costs U.S. businesses approximately $11 billion, according to the Bureau of National Affairs. So it is clear that manager and managers and employers are failing on their part, to build relationships of trust and appreciation. Not only in work relationships, but two episodes ago, back in episode 140, I mentioned how the top reasons couples divorce is because of growing apart, infidelity, and an inability to communicate well with one another. So clearly, building trust is something that is important for us all to consider. So let's look at how we can build trust in our relationships, whether that be romantic, family, friends, or at work. McManus in the International Journal of Management and Information Systems in 2015 wrote that it is very important to remember that individuals have different needs and a one-size-fits-all approach is bound to fail. Building trust with a person should be tailored to their individual needs in order to create the perception of meaningfulness. For example, some individuals may crave open recognition and being told that they are appreciated, while others may be shy from that and rather they are motivated by thoughtful gifts or attentiveness with a listening ear. Perhaps they're motivated by having some autonomy or in a work environment, they may be rewarded by having a flexible working schedule or advancement opportunities. It is important for us to remember the factors that satisfy each person's unique needs, and to work toward that. And simply asking them how you feel appreciated, tell me how you feel appreciated, can go a long way. Building trust can be facilitated through many means, so let me give some specific examples. One, building honesty by staying true to our word. So many times it can seem like something insignificant that if we say we're going to do something and not following up on it. But over time, that can slowly chip away at the trust that's in a relationship. So if we say that we are going to do something, then it is important that we follow through. And if we can't follow through, then to communicate why we may not be able to do so. A second example is to maintain confidentiality. If someone confides in us, it is important to respect their privacy and not share their private details with others. Can we imagine how a relationship could be weakened by us hearing that someone we confided in had told others about our discussion? The third example is competence and confidence. It is important that we hold up our end of the relationship by filling our responsibilities and expectations. Holding up our end of the deal, so to speak. Because people rely on us to carry out our roles. And if we don't fulfill our roles, we can let them down. And that can weaken the trust in a relationship. Fourth example is fidelity, which is the duty to help others beyond our own self interest. Being able to put aside our own emotions in order to be attentive and helpful. For example, if our partner approaches us and tells us that they are sad because of something we did, putting aside our own emotions to try to understand might be helpful in building trust. The opposite would be to not listen or to take it too personally, and that would create a lack of communication and could hurt the trust as well. A fifth example is to be accessible, to be approachable, attentive, and respectful to others. People need to feel like they can sit down and share something with us, and that we can be attentive to them, truly listening to them, aiming to understand them without our own self-interest. For example, let's say that we are a manager or a boss at an institute. If our employee comes to us saying that they cannot meet a deadline because of a personal crisis, we could respond to this in a few different ways. For example, we could respond that we're frustrated, the deadline won't be met, but that won't be very helpful. We could respond with aiming to understand with empathy. That could be helpful in helping to build trust. But more importantly, We could work with the individual to brainstorm, to be resourceful, to figure out how to meet the deadline with the given situation. How we approach this type of situation can be very important in building trust with our colleague. And doing so with aiming to understand and communicate clearly is the key. Number six, aiming to help balance power dynamics by allowing some of the decisions to be made by our team members. This illustrates our trust in them. For example, if we are brainstorming future project ideas, we could ask one of our teammates their opinion and show that we are confident and interested in what they bring to the table. A seventh example is to be transparent about goals and reasons behind making certain decisions. Sometimes in situations, there can be some resentment or frustration When the reason behind a decision being made is not communicated clearly. For example, a parent saying to a child, no, because I said so. Or a boss denying a raise or a request for vacation without a clear reason. How can we change that simple no to a better answer? Because that lack of clear communication is what creates resentment and a lack of trust in a relationship. So instead of simply saying no, the answer could be no, because I'm concerned for your safety. And I think that this is an unsafe situation because of specifically this and this. Or no, unfortunately, we cannot give you a raise because we don't have the means to facilitate a raise right now. But how about instead we offer three extra days of vacation? This type of response is thoughtful and clear. And as a result, we'll create a better relationship based on trust and openness. You see, with these examples, I hope that it is clear that building trust takes effort. A relationship that does not have trust, in my opinion, is probably due to a lack of care and a lack of effort. Because taking the time to be attentive to someone, to clearly understand where they're coming from, to try to clearly communicate to them, and to have their back, all takes effort. And that's really the key, I think, to building trusting relationships. Trust in itself is such an interesting concept and emotion. In essence, every human interaction we have has a level of trust. We trust that as we walk down the sidewalk, everyone will be polite and follow social norms. We trust that people perhaps won't harm us, that the clerk at the store will fulfill the transaction when we give money and we receive groceries, we may take these social interactions and the trust involved in them somewhat for granted. But the fewer, perhaps larger, asks are what involves more acknowledgement of trust. For example, confiding in someone and asking them to keep it between you and them. Or asking someone to watch our child or our pet. Those involve greater levels of trust. Trusting to fall in love with someone. The ability to trust also has to do with aversion or avoidance of betrayal. Aversion being an avoidance because of a negative feeling. So someone fearing and avoiding betrayal. And what determines betrayal aversion? Well, it could be previous experiences of being hurt. It could be conditioning from experiences with family or friends. It could even be watching TV or reading books perhaps it's our own neurobiology as well. Amon in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society in 2014 published an intriguing brain imaging study looking at trust, distrust, and betrayal aversion in people. Here's an interesting distinction that they made in this study. They speculate that decisions we make are sure to be risky when they are made in with uncertainty caused by nature. For example. Deciding to wear shorts and a t-shirt with a 60% chance of thunderstorm could be viewed as a risky decision. By contrast, a decision is said to be trusting when its outcome depends on the uncertain decisions of another person. So asking someone to look after your child or pet, that is a trusting decision. So risky is when the outcome is dependent on something by nature or the environment and trusting is when the outcome is dependent on another person. Scientists report in this study that there are significant differences between these two types of decisions, risky versus trusting. The hallmark feature between these two simply might be betrayal aversion. For example, if we choose to wear shorts and t-shirts outside and it thunderstorms, we don't necessarily feel betrayed by the weather. Maybe we just feel unlucky. But when we choose to trust someone, there can be an underlying fear of betrayal we may make actions or decisions to avoid that feeling of betrayal. Hence, therefore, the concept of betrayal aversion, being averse or fearful of betrayal and avoiding those types of situations. So the scientists conducted brain imaging studies to investigate this further. So in this study, they recruited 60 participants to participate in an experiment of investing money with risky or trusting decisions. And they also scanned their brains at the same time. So what did the scientists find? When the participants made the decision to trust someone, in contrast to the safe option of not to trust them, the scientists observed increased activity in the right anterior insular cortex and the mid-anterior cingulate. The scientists here report for the first time the neurobiology of betrayal aversion. Activity in the insula of the brain was greater when people made decisions that they may have resulted in betrayal resulting in reduced willingness to participate in socializing, for example. The scientists also noted in people who displayed more avoidance of decisions that could result in betrayal had greater insular recruitment when choosing to trust. Scientists speculate that the differences in betrayal aversion and brain activity in response to their decisions to trust or not may be related to one's ability for emotion regulation. Emotion regulation meaning our ability to define our emotions, and to think logically about what is causing us to feel a certain way. Emotion regulation can be achieved through techniques of affect labeling that I've spoken about many times on this podcast. So it's interesting. An individual that perhaps has been betrayed in the past, that has aversion to betrayal, that makes decisions to avoid being betrayed again, may have greater recruitment of the insula in their brain. One way perhaps to get around that could potentially be affect labeling, which I've talked about many times, where we try to understand what emotions we are specifically feeling and what may be causing those emotions. Kruger and the journal PNAS in 2007 wrote a report on the neuroscience of trust. They identified distinct brain regions that were involved when people made decisions to trust in a partner, for example, the paracingulate cortex other studies have shown that the paracingulate cortex not only represents our own thoughts or feelings and beliefs, but also is influenced by our processing, the mental states of other people. This brain region may be important in the skill of mentalizing. And I spoke about the skill of mentalizing back in episode 128 titled, How to Make Lasting Friendships as an Adult. Mentalizing is a component of emotional intelligence. It is the ability to work with many different personalities, to be able to see and respond to their emotional states in a functional way. People that have a greater skill of mentalizing are able to have more close friendships versus individuals that struggle with mentalizing. So if that topic interests you, then feel free to go back to episode 128, and that is one of my favorite episodes. So what else seems to be involved physiologically in the emotion of trust? Well, the eyes are philosophically thought to be a window into the soul. And they just might, as they can tell a lot about a person. Everything from our emotions, our mental state, if we are being attentive, and yes, maybe even certain aspects of intelligence, as well as trust. In fact, Mazur wrote in the American Journal of Physiology that eye contact or gazing into someone's eyes holds a lot of power. It can convey dominance over someone, like in a stare down. It can be a communication channel unto itself by using nonverbal cues to send a message to someone else. In clinical trials, scientists noted that gazing into the eyes of someone can elicit a physiological response of increased skin conductance, dilated pupils, and changes in breathing rate and heart rate. In the journal eNeuro in 2019, participants were told to maintain eye contact with their partner and simultaneously underwent neuroimaging via functional magnetic resonance imaging to understand which brain regions were involved the scientists noted that their response to eye contact was regulated by their cerebellum and limbic mirroring system of the brain. So they found a really cool finding that eye contact almost speaks to our desire to mimic or mirror someone. It is a tool to induce empathy. Eye contact is a way in which we can share our emotional and mental state with someone in a nonverbal way, perhaps in a vulnerable way. The other individual may mimic or empathize with that emotion being conveyed. And this seems to be regulated by brain regions responsible for mirroring. So for example, you could look into someone's eyes and convey that you love them just by looking at them. And they may mirror that emotion and convey with their eyes that they love you too. Perhaps now the message changes to something else and it can go back and forth with just a look or a gaze, with each person mirroring the other. Nonverbal communication of mirroring with just our eyes, which is pretty cool. Stass and Willis back in 1967 conducted a study to see what could influence someone choosing a partner to work with based on the first impression of who would I rather trust to work on this task. So they recruited 72 male and female participants and they were told that they were going to work with a partner in a situation of them handling money and in a task of close communication. So they would have to choose someone that they've never met before that they could do in a trustful way to work with money. So these individuals will be introduced to two people in a room that were of the same gender and similar level of attractiveness. Side note, the scientists here literally had a class of 200 students rate the level of attractiveness of people so that the scientists could choose similarly rated attractive people for this test so that they didn't want that to be a confounding factor. So the scientists tried their best to control for many variables. The key difference between the two people available to be chosen from was that one partner was to maintain eye contact while the other partner was instructed to glance away from time to time. So what do we think happened? The people deciding on the partner to work with chose the individual who maintained more eye contact. To be exact, 81% of people preferred the individual that provided more eye contact, but 19% did not. In addition, they noted pupil size to be an important factor here. If the individual had dilated pupils, meaning the dark center of their eye was slightly larger, this was associated with being chosen as the partner to work with. Back in episode 106, I talk about the science of our pupils. Our pupils are actually not opaque, but they're transparent. It literally is a look into the middle of our eye. Our pupil may dilate, become larger when we are in the dark to allow more light in. Conversely, the pupil may contract when we are in brightness, acting kind of like the aperture of a camera. But our pupils may also change size when we see something arousing or when we are concentrating and putting in mental effort. Scientists have noted that our pupil size may be correlated to our IQ or intelligence quotient. So the larger our pupils, the higher our IQ or intelligence. It is thought that our pupil size can be regulated by the locus ceruleus of our brain, as I shared in the foregone fact. That's a brain region involved in our awareness, our stress response, our fight or flight response, because it is the main source of norepinephrine in the brain. So in this clinical trial, the individuals decided to choose the partner who had more eye contact with them and also who tended to have larger pupils. So perhaps the eyes are not a window into our soul, but a window into our intelligence and the activity of our locus ceruleus. Does eye contact therefore allow another person to see us, like to really see us? Perhaps by making eye contact, we are making ourselves a bit vulnerable by allowing ourselves to be seen. And perhaps that sends a message of vulnerability and therefore opening up a relationship to trust. How much communication do we have between one another without it actually needing to be said? Because clearly much can be communicated and observed here with just eye contact. So the reason why I bring up these studies of eye contact is because when we're first meeting someone, or perhaps when we're having an important conversation with someone, that eye contact might be a really key feature to allowing ourselves to be vulnerable to one another, to illustrate our attention to one another, and therefore create that relationship built on trust. And what other physiological things might be controlling or regulating our ability to trust in someone or to build that type of relationship? Well, oxytocin is a really interesting hormone in this concept because it is very key in being able to build social relationships based on trust. Oxytocin production is stimulated by our hypothalamus and released into our blood via the pituitary gland of our brain. Oxytocin levels may rise, for example, with skin-to-skin contact. This is one reason when a child is born, they suggest the infant lay skin-to-skin with the mother, as that skin-to-skin contact can boost oxytocin levels. It can help facilitate bonding, as well as milk production in the mother. Chen in the Journal of Neuroscience last year spoke of how oxytocin receptors are important in our ability to sense the chemo signals that are emitted from other people. And I dedicate a whole entire episode to chemo signals back in episode 110. So chemo signals are the chemicals that are emitted from our body odor that we can subconsciously detect in others. And those chemo signals can influence our behavior and our emotions. In animals, for example, we call these pheromones. But in in episode 110, I talk of clinical trials, for example, where individuals will put gauze under their arms and they'll watch a really scary movie. Then that gauze is taken to other individuals that have no idea what was going on. They're told to sense or smell the gauze and to see what type of emotion they feel. And a lot of the times the individuals could sense and feel fear just by smelling the individual's body odor. There are so many things that are going on within us physiologically, like our eye contact, like our chemo signals that we give off, that we are subconsciously detecting in order to facilitate our behavior and the type of relationships that we can form. Another example, Bakermans in 2013 in the journal Translational Psychiatry had conducted a meta-analysis that pulled together several clinical trials to understand if oxytocin in the form of a nasal spray if that could help influence social behavior in humans. So in a group of healthy participants, it appeared overall that an oxytocin nasal spray did indeed increase feelings of trust and made people better at recognizing different emotions by looking at the faces of other individuals. Overall, the studies in humans with one single dose of oxytocin, typically 30 minutes following the oxytocin nasal spray, on average, seem to have some effects on behavior in specific psychology tasks. So, for example, receiving oxytocin via a nasal spray seemed to enhance interpersonal trust and cooperation on a task with others. It seemed to enhance their generosity, their social memory, and learning and emotional empathy. It also seemed to enhance their assessments of facial attractiveness and trustworthiness, as well as self-perception. So really intriguingly, these studies show that oxytocin, whether it's within the body or given as a nasal spray, enhances social interactions, relationship building, and trustworthiness. But on the other hand, it is important to note that a few studies observed that oxytocin nasal spray could also potentially enhance some negative feelings, like increasing feelings of envy and gloating. So it is thought that oxytocin may enhance social emotions in general, whether they are positive or negative. Clinical trials do indicate that, as I would mentioned, oxytocin levels may rise with skin-to-skin contact, but interestingly, they may also rise with exercise. This is intriguing in the context of romantic relationships. As I had mentioned back several episodes, when psychologists had asked individuals that were in a marriage To cite different aspects of the relationship and how happy they were, at the largest indicator of marital happiness was physical contact. And that raises the question, is it because physical contact, skin-to-skin contact, helps to release oxytocin levels? And oxytocin seems to facilitate our ability to bond and to trust one another. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? And something to think about in the context of romantic relationships. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army, the neuroscience of trust and vulnerability. To build trust, we must choose to be vulnerable in order to trust someone. We must expose our back, knowing that they will protect us, for fear that yes, we could be hurt. And avoiding that hurt is called betrayal avoidance. And that seems to involve the insula of our brain. And one way around that could be to use the technique of affect labeling, which is to specifically identify our emotions and pinpoint the reason why we may be feeling that way. In order to build relationships built on trust, we must put in effort to maintain that trust by communicating our emotions and our intent, by being honest, by showing appreciation, by following through on our responsibilities and communicating when we cannot. You see, small little things over time, like not doing what we say we want to do or what we intended to do, could slowly chip away at the trust in a relationship and to keep that in mind. Trust is a central feature to all relationships, whether they be romantic, family, or work. And I hope that this episode was insightful and helpful for all of us in helping to build trusting relationships, to keep in mind that simple things like eye contact may display a level of vulnerability to allow someone to see us, and that, as a result, could potentially help with building a relationship built on trust. If you want to hear more about the topic, then make sure to follow me on social media where I share tidbits of information on the week's topic. And if you enjoyed the show, then please share the podcast with a friend, or feel free to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the show. And I thank you so much in advance for that. The links on how to do all of that are available in the description box to this episode. I hope that you all have a wonderful week, and I look forward to meeting you all back here in two weeks' time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.